Welcome to the Three Strands Podcast. We hope you'll enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. At Three Strands, our mission is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. So we're starting this new series called Gym Class. We're going to do a book study through the book of James in the New Testament. If you want to look that up on your own, that's where we're going to be pretty much the whole time today. James chapter 1. The verses will be on the screen for you. Um, But James is kind of a unique book in the New Testament, and so um, I want to uh, piece that together for you for the next several weeks. I hope you'll come to each week. It's like one big sermon. We're going to break it up over several weeks and study through the whole book and kind of see what he's trying to say, um, inspired by the Holy Spirit to us as Christians. And uh, to those of us who are here who aren't Christians, maybe there'd be like a word of encouragement for you along the way too. And so I hope you'll just kind of plug into the whole series Let me just kind of kick it right off, verse 1, and read it to you, and then we'll go from there. He says, This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad, greetings. Now, that's a short introduction to his letter, his book, um, but it kind of packs a big punch. There's a lot in there, and I want to just kind of give you a little context, a little background, so we'll be able to understand the book together as we study through it. And so uh, the first thing I want to point out is who James is. James is the half-brother of Jesus, right? Now, Jesus came from a big family. doesn't often get talked about in church, but Jesus had at least four brothers and two sisters. So there was at least seven kids. That's a big, that's a pretty big family, even by like Kentucky standards, right? Like some people around here got some big families, but that's a pretty big family. He might have had more than that, but at least that many. James was like the next oldest brother. So it's like Jesus was the oldest, right? Because Mary had Jesus before she had been with a man, right? So, yeah, so Jesus is the oldest. And then James is most likely the next oldest. So they're like the closest in age. It's his half-brother. And James didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He wasn't a Jesus follower, While Jesus was ministering, doing miracles, preaching messages, James, like the rest of Jesus' family, was kind of like, ah, I'm not convinced. Sounds like a lunatic. Sounds a little off, you know? Jesus even pointed out that, like, the people from his family, his hometown, none of them believed that he was who he said he was. I mean, I can't really blame James for that. Who would believe if your brother came down the stairs and they're like, hey, I'm the son of God? He'd be like, shut up, dude. You know, get back to... And so, uh, but James doesn't believe it. The book of James takes place about 10 years after Jesus has resurrected from the dead and gone back to heaven. And something happened in between James's disbelief of who Jesus was and the writing of this letter to a bunch of uh, Jewish believers scattered around the known world that changed James's mind. And it's the only thing that should change your mind about who Jesus is. And we find out what it is in Acts. In Acts, we're specifically told that Jesus showed up to James after his resurrection. He didn't appear to everybody, but he appeared to quite a few people. But one of those people specifically we're told about that he he showed up to was James, his half-brother. And from that moment on, James got a fire lit under him. Because if you saw your brother die and then come back from the dead you might be more inclined to believe what he's telling you. And so James's whole life changed 10 years previous to writing this when he saw Jesus resurrected. 
Our life should change because Jesus has been resurrected. That's the only reason. Not because Jesus taught a good moral lesson. Not because Jesus did a lot of miraculous or cool tricks. But because Jesus came back from the dead, it proved that he's God. It proved that he was who he said he was. It proved that everything he predicted he would do, he did do. And so we should take note of what he says. We should alter our life and follow him just like James did. It's a, um, it's a fascinating statement that James makes when he calls himself a slave of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the things he could have said, he could have said, I'm an apostle, I'm the pastor at the church in Jerusalem. And he was these things. I'm a Christian. I'm a great man. I'm a devout follower of the Lord. But he singles out his brother's name and wants everybody to know he has become a slave to Jesus. That'd be a hard pill to swallow if it was your brother or sister. Be like, I'm just going to be their slave the rest of my life. So he must have been convinced that Jesus really was the Lord, that Jesus really was the Christ. So this book gets written somewhere around A.D. 40, A.D. 45. Jesus, of course, died around A.D. 32, 33. And so you're about 10 or so years after Jesus' death. And James makes this statement, and he sends this letter out to believers. And so this book or letter, however you want to describe it, is written to Christians. And that's not always the case in the Bible. Sometimes you get instructions that are specifically for non-Christians or uh, the gospel presentation. But James spends almost no time in this five-chapter letter book writing. He spends almost no time telling you about the gospel. He operates under the assumption that everybody he's writing to is already following Jesus just like he is, that the people he's sending this letter to are already Christians and already believers, followers of what they called at that time, the way. And so you're not going to get a lot of the things you get from later writings from like Paul or Peter where they're sharing the real gospel with people and, and, and persuading and begging and motivating and inviting everyone to respond to the gospel. No, James writes first. I know this letter is kind of tucked near the end of your Bible, but in date, this is probably the very first New Testament book written. So imagine at this time when we're studying through this, there is no New Testament yet. All you have is the Old Testament. And now James, the pastor at the church, the church where it kind of all got started in Jerusalem, writes this five-chapter letter and sends it out to the Christians all over the Roman Empire. It's the first glimpse into anything new they've got other than Judaism in the Old Testament. And so because of that, there's a lot of similarities between James's writing and the writings of the Old Testament. In fact, James is often called like the Proverbs of the New Testament. He writes it as if it was wisdom literature, where a lot of the books of the Bible you see in the New Testament written by Paul or Peter or John, those are specifically letters. They have a narrative to them and a flow you can follow throughout. James's writing is more kind of like short, pithy statements, instructions to live wisely. And, and what would you need if you were a Christian living in the Roman Empire and and you'd come out of Judaism and you decided Jesus was the Son of God and you're going to follow him and give him all you got. But now all you have is these religious teachings from the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders. And you're like, what do I do with this Jesus that I'm following? 
James writes them a book or a letter to highlight those things. This is how you do it. This is how you do the Jesus life. This is how you live the way of a follower of Christ. And so you're going to get that all throughout where it seems almost choppy sometimes and, and you can't always follow the, the flow of thought in some narrative book or a story like you could in one of the Gospels. But I'm going to do my best to kind of give us all these wise sayings and wise proverbs and statements from James and then see if we can do our best as a collective family to say how do those apply to a Jesus follower? How can we go out and live exactly what James is saying to live? It's maybe the most practical book in the whole Bible. He's going to give you the basic instructions for how to go out and live like you say you believe. And so if you're here and you're looking for the gospel, it's, it's not front and center in this book like it is in so many books, but we're going to do our best to share it and show you how it's woven into even these thoughts of how you live the Christian experience. And it's only five chapters long, like I said, but in this short five chapters, James references 22 different passages from the Old Testament. That's a lot. And that kind of just kind of goes along with that idea that there are no other New Testament books at this point. And he's kind of building off all the Old Testament scriptures into this kind of new revelation. But at the same time, he's not doing away with all the old. He's just enforcing it, reinforcing it for us. On top of that, he also repeats 15 different teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. That also I find to be amazing because here's his like older brother. and He's like, let me tell you what my older brother taught in his best, maybe most famous sermon. And so he's kind of weaving together all this Old Testament teaching with the teachings of Jesus. In fact, outside <coughs> of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's probably no book in the Bible that does a better job of explaining Jesus' teachings outside of Jesus himself in the Gospels, right? And so James is going to do this kind of beautiful, um, you know, weaving together job of all the Old Testament Judaism with this new way or the way or Christianity and, and show you how does that look like in the real world? How do you develop a faith that actually works in real life? Because I don't want a faith that is like I just come into church on a Sunday and I say I believe, but then it doesn't affect my Monday through Saturday at all. <clears throat> so I want a faith that works. And he's going to teach us how to work it out. That's why we called it gym class, right? We're going to exercise our faith. We're going to stretch ourselves a little bit. I hope you'll take a few notes throughout. Jot down a few things you could do. And he's going to kind of get right into it after this short introduction along the way. I was thinking this week, <coughs> I got something in my throat, <laughs> but I appreciate that, Brian. Thank you. Lily, write that down. Take notes on that. But uh, I was thinking this week about when our kids were little. Now, our kids are still little, but what I mean when they were like really little, okay? And there's this spot in our house where like the ceiling's real high, you know, like kind of vaulted double out in our hallway. And so I used to take our kids out there and just chuck them in the air as high as I could. All right, don't call children youth services on me. I never dropped them. I'd just throw them up in the air as high as I could and catch them. And they thought it was like the most amazing thing in the whole world. I can still do that, but now I can only throw them like an inch in the ground. Like I pull something in my shoulder or something, you know. So I can't really do that now. But they used to love that. And so we would do that pretty often, you know. I'd catch them coming down the stairs in the morning, and they would even ask, start asking for it. They'd be, will you throw me? And I would just throw them in the air and then catch them, you know. 
And so uh, I would throw them a little bit, then a little bit higher, then a little bit. Some of you dads, you know you did this or still do this. Don't pretend like it's just me that does this, okay? And um, I, I can remember this, this kind of look on their faces, okay? When I would get them to like a certain height. And, and the best way I can explain it, it was like, it was like total joy, mixed with like total terror. You, you know what I'm talking about? It's almost like the roller coaster look, you know what I mean? Where it's like total, it's just like they couldn't have been happier, but at the same time, their face looked like if I hit the ground, I'm dead. You know what I mean? It was like at the same time. And I thought, man, that's a good example of what James is going to talk to us about today. That part of the Christian experience, now it's not the way I would start off the book, but he didn't ask my opinion, so but part of the Christian experience is learning how to have this like 100% joy while experiencing like 100% terror. And you see that all throughout God's word. People who are literally being executed who seem to still have joy. People who are facing overwhelming obstacles and yet seem to be at peace with their Lord. So James is going to kind of get right to it. And this is what he says starting in verse 2. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, when, if you're an underliner or a highlighter, underline that word, when. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now, it feels like James didn't check this out with like Mrs. James. Because that doesn't seem like the best way to start off a letter. I mean, even if you're going to talk about going through really difficult troubles, it doesn't seem like the next line would be like, hey, think of it as like awesome, you know. It doesn't seem like that would be your instruction. And even if that was going to be your instruction, it seems like you'd sandwich that puppy between like some cuddlier, friendlier things, right? Like, hey, God's always going to be with you. Jesus has got your back. If you're a Christian in this world, God will keep his promises. And you're like hitting some of those things. And then you're like, but along the way, you might experience some trouble. No, he just like hits it from the beginning. Hey, you are going to have trouble. When you have trouble, not if you have trouble. When you have trouble, consider it an opportunity for great joy. That's not what you tell like in a new believers class. Somebody comes to faith, you're like, hey, it's about to get rough, you know. But that's how it is. In fact, some of the people's stories that we've been recording for baptism in two weeks, several of them already have like shared that in their story. Be like, I came to faith in Christ. I decided to follow Jesus. And actually, it's been worse since then. Like, okay, welcome to the club. That's how it goes. When you experience trouble, consider an opportunity for great joy. James, you sure you don't want to reword that? Like when you experience trouble, depend on Jesus and he'll make it all better. Depend on God and he'll get you through. No, what he says is consider it an opportunity to experience great joy. It's almost like a, like a head scratcher. Look what he says in verse 3. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. If you're an underliner or highlighter, underline that phrase. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Okay. So stay with me for a second. There's a question I want to ask you. I think I got this in there somewhere. It might be out of order. But here's the question I want to ask. It's kind of the question James is addressing for us. Ready? How do you get through what feels unget throughable? 
That's what he's talking about. He's giving us a blueprint, a process to follow to get through what feels ungetthroughable when you're experiencing trouble and trials, difficulty, suffering. How do you get through that stuff? This is how you get through it. He's going to give us the process. Now, let me show you the process first. Then we'll go back and look at it. Here's what it looks like. You ready? I think this is slide one. I think. Yeah. You're going to experience trials. Okay. When you experience trials, you got to consider those trials something to embrace. You got to consider them an opportunity for joy. Right? Now I put a blank there. Skip the blank for a second. There's something if we do that our endurance will increase or get bigger, stronger. And when that happens, we will grow or mature. Now, I left the blank intentionally. We're going to come back to it in a second, okay? But he says this. This is the process he lays out. We'll go back and look at it again. So just stay with me. Kind of wanted to put it up there like visually if you're a visual learner, right? The process. So you could see how it flows. And what I did here is the only thing I left out is the piece of the process that I think some of us might disagree about, okay? That maybe we're not living out, like James is telling us we have to live out. And all the other pieces I put up here are the ones I think that we're all, or almost all of us, are going to be able to agree on. Now see if you agree with me on this, all right? He says, when you experience trials, is there anybody in the room that thinks that from this day till the end of your life, you're never going to have any more hard times? Or do we all agree that trials, troubles are coming? Okay, so we all agree on that piece of the process, right? That they're on the way. If they haven't come, they're coming. And if they've just left you, they'll be back. Is that fair? So we all agree on that, okay? So go back to that process just for a second, okay? Then he says, when they show up, consider them. You have to consider them. You have to think about them a certain way, right? Consider them an opportunity for great joy. You have to embrace the opportunity. Now, now you're like, well, I don't know if we all agree on that. Well, think about it for a second. Is there anybody talking to their kids who their kid was having a problem or some kind of trouble? You'd be like, hey, run away and hide. Don't deal with it. No, <laughs> right? Like nobody would say that. I think we're all like in agreement. When trouble comes up, there's, there's a moment there where like you can either handle it the right way or the wrong way. No matter what the trouble is, there's kind of a way you can handle it that would be healthy and a way you can handle it would be destructive. And that's what James is saying here. When those troubles come up, you have to make a conscious, conscious choice, a, a consideration. You have to consider them an opportunity instead of an obstacle. You have to change the way you think about them and start to see them for potential reward instead of just Eeyore. And don't we all know people or don't we all see in ourselves times when troubles come up and we kind of Eeyore it? And it's always, woe is me, the sky is falling, I'll never be anything. And then we see times in people's lives or maybe times in our own lives where trouble comes up and we kind of look back and we're like, man, I really grew through that. What's the difference? Okay. And then he's like, if we do this one thing, then our endurance will increase. Now, is there anybody who disagrees with that? That when you experience difficulty or trials or troubles and you're able to come out the other side of it, you're stronger. 
Is that not why every athletic coach has their kids practice? Because it's practice that like builds up your endurance. Isn't that why we do it? To kind of hone our skills, to come out on the other side, more polished, stronger. And then he says, if you do this and stick with it, you'll become complete, perfect, mature, some translations say. Don't we all agree that? Agree with that? If you found somebody who was 25 years old and they were still crawling on their hands and knees, wouldn't you say to them, like, you need to grow up? You need to mature. How am I going to mature? Well, you're going to have to uh, look at the opportunity to walk as something to be like a joyful thing. Then kind of do it. Stick with it. You'll come out stronger on the other end. Trust me, I know it's a pain in the neck to get up and walk, but go for it. Life will be better. I think we all kind of agree on these pieces of the process. That trials are certain and they're going to come. We have to consider them or change our perspective or the way we view those things in our life if we're going to get anything positive out of them. And that the end goal of all these troubles is our growth or our maturity. That's God's goal. His end goal for you is growth and maturity. And that's cool because God loves us too much to just leave us undeveloped. And I'm glad. I don't want him to just leave me a baby, leave me with no capacity. I want him to stretch my capacity, increase my strength, make me more mature. And so this growth is born through adversity. And you know that if you ever ask somebody, hey, tell me about the times in your life when you grew the most. They almost never mention like something happy. They almost always tell you about something that was awful. I went through this divorce and I was, thought it was my life was over and yet somehow I've come out on the other side and I'm like a wiser person. I went through this injury or this disease and I didn't think I was going to make it and somehow like God brought me through and now I look back and I think like I'm a stronger person because of it. I was broke and poor and unemployed and I couldn't find a job. I was sitting in a prison cell. I was using pills and needles and all along the way I thought my life was over and yet somehow like God was patient with me and he didn't abandon me. He just kept like kind of working me through this process. Now looking back I can see like it was those times in my life that kind of like strengthened me on the inside, Right? I love how David Brooks writes this in his book, The Road to Character. This is what he says. I'll put it on the screen for you too. He said, when most people think about the future, they dream up ways they might live happier lives. Is that true? I think that's true. But notice this phenomenon. When, most, when people remember the crucial events that formed them, they don't usually talk about happiness. It is usually the ordeals that seem most significant. And I love this line at the end. People shoot for happiness but feel formed through adversity. I think we can all agree on that stuff. Okay. Now I just want to stay true to the text here, okay? So James now breaks away from this discussion on trials, troubles, endurance, all that. And he's going to give us, in the next two paragraphs, two things that can keep you from following that process. They may not be the only two things, but the answers to them are about the only two answers, okay, that you need. For whatever the problem is, whatever the... So you might look at this process and think like, okay, trouble, difficulty, adversity. I want my endurance to grow. I want to come out on the other side more mature, complete, and, 
and grown up. I want to do that. But I'm not sure if I got enough wisdom for it. That's true. That could be a possibility. Some of us could lack the wisdom it takes to endure trials and trouble in our life. Here's what he says about it. Look at verse 5. If you need wisdom, ask our, our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. So many of us live that way. It's like something happens to us and we have no endurance, no resistance to it. It just pushes us wherever it wants to take us. Just like a wave, the wind just pushes us along. We have no endurance, no resistance to it. We lack the wisdom it takes to know what to do in that moment. And he's saying, if that's you, ask God for wisdom. Verse 7, such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Do you get it? So if you size up your life, you're like, man, the problem is I don't have wisdom. How do you know if the problem for you is you don't have enough wisdom to deal with the troubles and trials of life. Here's how you know. You keep making the exact same mistake over again. You got it? You keep finding yourself in the exact same unhealthy relationship for the eighth time. You keep making the same poor financial choice. You keep choosing the wrong job. You keep treating somebody the wrong way. You, you keep finding yourself repeating the same mistake over and over. You, you lack the wisdom it's going to take to endure through the trial and trouble. And James's answer to it is, ask God for it. Simple, right? Write that down if you're a note taker. If I lack wisdom, ask God for help. Got it? Now here's the second thing he says. The second problem you could face trying to live this way and push through trouble and adversity is money. Maybe you don't have enough of it, or maybe you have a bunch of it. He's going to give us both sides of it. And he's going to present either one as a possible roadblock to enduring through trouble and trial. But he's going to give us the answer. Here, let me read you what he says, verse 9. He says, believers who are poor have something to boast about. Doesn't sound like that to me, but okay, for a second, let's just stay with them. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. Underline that. God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. Underline that. God has humbled them. Seems like it should be the opposite, right? Stay with me for a second. He said, they will fade like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls. And as beauty fades away, in the same way the rich will fade away with all their achievement. Here's what he's saying. Maybe the problem for you in facing trials and troubles is that you're broke. And so it always feels like there's no way you can endure through the trouble any longer. He's like, if that's you, I want you to remember something. In God's kingdom, you're honored. God must consider you something special to let you be broke. To let you put up with such a difficult thing. To let you have to experience such a, tr a difficult trouble or trial in your life. In God's kingdom, the first are last and the last are first. And God uses the rich things of this world to put to shame. Or the poor things of this world to put to shame the rich things of this world. It's opposite in God's kingdom. So you should look at your poverty as like a blessing from God. 
okay, God, I'm seeing this for what it is. You're trusting me with one of, if not the most difficult trials to face. It's an honor that God would think so highly of you. And then he goes on, he says, but if you're rich, don't forget that all that's going to be stripped away from you pretty soon. And God's going to humble you. So, so in your life, don't get so puffed up and so proud that you're thinking, I can handle any trouble that comes my way because of my bank account. Instead, you should remember that all that's going to fade away quickly. And that won't be what gets me through these troubles or trials. You with me so far? So he's like, if you lack wisdom, ask God for help. And if you're having money problems, stop and remember the real truth. And those two answers, like those aren't the only two problems, but those two answers pretty much cover everything that could be the problem for you. Stop and ask God for help and stop and remember the truth about what's going on. Stop and ask God for help and stop and remember the truth about your situation. And now he's going to bust back into this discussion again. Let me show you in verse 12. He says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. I love that line in the NLT. Is different translations kind of put that different ways. But almost all the translations I looked at this week, you don't see testing and temptation. You just see one or the other. It's kind of God blesses those who patiently endure testing or God blesses those who patiently endure temptation. He's now going to kind of dive into this discussion on temptation. We'll come back to that, but, but just kind of hang on to that thought for a second that there's these two things kind of He's tackling at the same time, testing and temptation, right? And then he's like, hey, if maturity wasn't a big enough reward for you, let me add some icing on the cake. If you patiently endure testing and temptation, you will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And here he goes, verse 13. And remember when, there's another when, underline that, because this is just as sure as the trouble. It's not an if, it's a when. When you are being tempted, do we all agree on that? Is there anybody that thinks they're going to walk out the door and for the rest of their life they're never going to feel temptation? Come on. So we're all on the same page on that. But when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Verse 14, instead, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. Underline that line, drag us away. And then verse 15, these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Okay, stay with me for a second. Because I think we're all going to agree on most of this too. So he gives us this second process. It's the wrong way, right? You got the right way to handle difficulty. And now he's like, let me give you the wrong way to handle temptation. And here's what this looks like. I put it on picture form for you too. I think it's slide two. Everybody's going to have temptation when it comes, right? And, and you're going to get the choice to do it the right way or the wrong way. He says the wrong way is when you reject the opportunity. You don't embrace the opportunity. You reject it, and there's something missing there. And that will lead you to some sinful choices, and those sinful choices will lead you to death. Okay? Stay, stay with me just for a second. Now put up like the third slide. I want you to see both of them together here, okay? The, the thing that I don't want you to miss that we lose in English that they would have got right in Greek, okay? Is that these words that are used for trouble, 
trials, temptation, they're all the same word. They're all the same word in Greek. Okay? So that's why I love that the NLT put them both together in that phrase for us. Bless, God blesses those who, endures, who endure trials and temptation. Because it's just one word there, but it's the same word. Just sometimes our English translators translate it trials and troubles. Sometimes they translate it temptation. But what he's trying to say is like, whether you're facing a trial or whether you're facing a temptation, the opportunity still exists. The only difference between the two is a trial is something that happens kind of on the outside to me. A temptation is something that happens on the inside through me or in me. You get it? Trial is when like something goes wrong in my life. A circumstance goes wrong. A temptation is when I feel this pull or this desire on the inside to disobey God. But they're both difficulty. They're both adversity. And James is letting us know that whether you're facing a trial on the outside or a temptation on the inside, the opportunity is the same for either one. There's an opportunity there for great joy, an opportunity there to endure and to push through and see your endurance grow and to become mature and complete. Or you can reject that opportunity and make sinful choices and it'll lead you to death. Now, I think most of us would agree with all of this, that when you're tempted to do the wrong thing, and we all will be tempted, you have the opportunity right there to obey God or disobey God. Do we all agree with that? And, and if you disobey God, you're going to make these sinful choices. And if you make enough of what God calls sinful choices, you're dead. Maybe it won't result in your physical death, but sometimes it will. A lot of the things that God says to do and not do are really wise, even if you weren't a Christian. And so a lot of times you find somebody that's died kind of prematurely, you can almost trace it back to somebody's sinful choice most of the time. Somebody decided to get wasted and get behind the wheel of a car. Somebody decided to take matters into their own hands and deal with their anger their way. I mean, it's, it's, I think there's a lot of agreement in the room on this, but here's, here's where the problem lies. This is the pieces I left out. Let me show them to you, okay? Here's the first one. For, the, for us to get it right, we got to press in. And that might be confusing. Just kind of hang with me for a second. For us to get it wrong, we got to pull back. That's the next slide, I think. And here's what I mean by that. I'm going to show you back in God's Word where he says this, okay? But, but what he's talking about is like everybody's facing the same opportunity. Everybody's facing the same difficulties, the same temptations. And when you're faced with them, you can either embrace the opportunity or you can reject the opportunity. And here's how you know if you're embracing the opportunity. You press into God's way. And how many people have you known, and maybe this is you, maybe this has been you, something goes wrong in your life, something doesn't pan out the way you want it to, something feels really difficult, and the last place you want to be is right here on a Sunday morning. Instead, you pull back. If I go to life group, somebody might ask me about what's going on. Somebody might have heard what I've been doing. Somebody might know from Facebook. And so because somebody might know, because somebody might think differently of you, because somebody might confront you or call you on it, you pull back instead of press in. It's the same trial. It's the same temptation. Are your temptations any different than what I experience? 
Are they any different than what Jesus experienced? Jesus would say no in Hebrews. That we have a high priest who's been tested and tempted in all the same ways we were, yet he chose to press into God's plan every time. You want to grow up? You want to mature? You want a faith that works? You want to exercise your spiritual muscles? Then when things get rough, or when the inside is telling you to disobey God, you press into God's way. And it, I don't always want to do that. But, but nowhere in this process does it have anything to do with what I want or how I feel. I choose God's way because I know it's going to lead me to maturity and a crown of life. And I want the reward. I want the blessing. I want the growth. I don't want to stay undeveloped. And I want my capacity to be stretched. And this is how I do it. And so whether it's a trial on the outside or a temptation on the inside, I press into God's way. Let me show you where he says it. Let's look back at it. Look back at verses 3 and 4 again. He said, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. It won't definitely grow. It just has a chance to grow. Only if you press in. Here's where he says it in verse 4. Look, he says, So let it grow. Apparently, you get a choice in the matter. Apparently, you have the ability to let it grow or to keep it shrunk down baby-sized. The way you let it grow is you press into God's way. That's it. Let me show you the other one. If you look back down in verses 14 and 15, it says, temptations come from our own desires which entice us. And then what's it say they do to us? They drag us away. That's pull back. You get it? Those desires give birth to sinful action, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. I get the choice to press in or to pull back. And every time I pull back, I stunt my growth. And every time I press in, my endurance increases, and I get more mature. So every time I wake up on Sunday morning and my head hurts, and I push through, and I press into God's way, and I show up at church anyhow. Every time I would rather look at porn, but I grab my Bible and I read what God has to say, I'm pressing in. Every time I feel like isolating and pulling back from everybody around me because it would be awkward or uncomfortable or different, or I don't know if I can do, every time I press into the Jesus way, I grow. And every time I pull back from the Jesus way, I invite death into my life. Do you get it? I know it might sound simple, but it's hard to do. Why? Because I know the trials you're facing feel like the hardest thing anybody could ever face. And I know that the temptations you feel feel more intense than you think anybody else is dealing with. But this is not the truth. There's been a lot of... Uh, and just in case you missed this, let me wrap up what James says in verses 16 to 18. Because it can be confusing. Like, how do I know if I'm being tempted? How do I know if I'm experiencing a trial? How do I know which is which? Don't overthink it. Don't worry about which one it is. Just press into Jesus. Here's what he says to wrap it up. Don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift from God. A gift coming down from us to us from God our Father who created all the lights in heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting sh shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving his true word, and we out of all creation become, became his prized possession. What's he saying? Don't overthink it. If it's good, it's from God. 
If it's not, it's not. Simple. Don't worry about it. But either way, the opportunity is the same. Keep pressing in to Jesus's way. Listen, there's been a lot of talk around our area, all of Eastern Kentucky, and really nationally to some level, the last couple weeks about revival. Been a lot of talk about that. All this stuff going on at Asbury, and some of our like church folk have gone up there for some of that stuff. Super cool. Just want to say that up front. Like super cool, super awesome. But do you know what real revival is? I want you to know what real revival is, because real revival isn't a song, or isn't just somebody sharing their testimony. That, that's part of it. That is part of it. And what's been going on up there is super awesome. And I would encourage you to go up and be part of it. Like, that's cool, I think. But if that's all it is, it's over already. That's just part of revival. I hear a lot of people talk about revival and wanting to see revival and praying for revival and worshiping God like they're in revival. But there's a whole second half of revival that is necessary. And if we never get to that part, all we've done is had a religious experience. And that's all cool. It's just not all of it. You think the devil's afraid if we get together and sing? I know like Bethel convinced us that like my, my weapon is a melody and all that stuff. And that's cool and true. I get that, right? But if that's all it is, you think the devil's scared of that? Like, he used to lead worship. He ain't scared of a song. You think he's scared? You think his plan's thrown off if a bunch of Christians get together and huddle up in a room and we kind of cry and have a tingle on our spine and sing? That's all great. That's all part of the process. But here's what really scares the devil. Here's what really throws a monkey wrench into his plan. Here's what really... Real revival looks like. We can all start with that stuff. But here's where it has to end. You ready? Obedience to the Lordship of Jesus. That's revival. And so whatever it takes to trigger that in me is excellent. And if it takes a sermon to trigger that in my heart, God's using that. And if it takes a worship night to trigger that in my heart, God's using that. If it takes a quiet time in my bedroom with my Bible to trigger that, God's using that. If it takes a friend to confront me about the way I've been living, then God's using that. But if it stays right there, it's not revival. Real revival is when I submit to the Lordship of Jesus and I just keep pressing in. Listen, no matter how bad the trouble is and no matter how intense the temptations are. That's revival. And I think God loves it when we sing worship music to him. I think he loves it when we pray. I think he loves it when we gather together as a church and eat dinner together and fellowship as a family. I think he loves that stuff. But sometimes I wonder like, if he doesn't love it as much or maybe even more when I just feel tired but I decide to read his word anyhow. When I just feel a little cranky, but I choose to be kind anyhow. When I feel like getting revenge, but I just turn the other cheek anyhow. When I feel like staying home, but I press in to community anyhow. Sometimes I wonder if those aren't the things that God will celebrate when I stand before him someday. And I've been in these crowds of thousands and worshiping and all that. It's so cool. It is so cool. I just want you to experience more. 
I just don't want it to die there. I just want it to go beyond that to what real revival looks like, which is ultimately ending at obedience to Jesus's rule of your life. His lordship, that he's in charge no matter what. I want you to press into God's way. Dallas Willard wrote it this way. The main thing God gets out of your life is not the achievements you accomplish. It's the person you become. God is trying to make you more and more like Jesus every day. And he's going to use all kinds of different tools to get you there. I hope you'll keep pressing into them. You can look at your own life and decide, are you pressing into God's plan or are you pulling back from it? Are you serving people more now than you were a year ago? Are you giving more than you were a year ago? Are you spending more time with God than you were a year ago? Are you showing more kindness than you were a year ago? Are you understanding his truth more than you were a year ago? Or are you stuck on your hands and knees? Not growing. I want to challenge you to press into the Jesus way. And I just think back to my kids, throwing them into the air. That's the look we should have on our face. It's kind of like terror and joy all mixed in one. And the thing I kept saying to them over and over, every time I saw that look on their face, every time, was trust me, I will never drop you. And I haven't, thankfully. But I feel like that's what God would say to us. I will never drop you. I know it's scary, but choose the opportunity for joy. I've got you. I'm with you. I, I got a plan. It's a plan to grow you up, to strengthen your face, to, to work out a little bit, to increase your endurance and make you more mature. So that no matter what I'm facing, even if I'm walking through a valley, like a valley of the shadow of death, I still don't have to be afraid because I know God's with me. I can still keep pressing in because I know he's got my back. And maybe you sit there and you think, that's easy for you to say you're the pastor. Well, you just don't know me if you think that. <laughs> I definitely got all the same problems you've got. You think that's easy for you to say you're the preacher. And I guess some ways you're right. You would have to wait until the day I die to know if I was willing to live this way up to death. You're right. You would have to know. Would I be willing to suffer anything, keep pressing into Jesus's way? Would I be willing to face anything and keep pressing into Jesus' way? You're right. You'd have to see me die before you'd know if I was going to be true to what I'm preaching. But here's the trick today. Nobody's asking you to follow me. And the guy we are asking you to follow, he did suffer to the point of death and kept pressing into Jesus's, into God's way. Let me read it for you as we close. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Let us strip off the weight every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. That's just what we taught. Jesus lived out exactly what he's asking you to do now. And no matter how difficult the suffering and no matter how intense the temptation, you just keep pressing into the Jesus way. 
And if you do, you will grow. You will grow. You will become more mature. Let me pray for you guys. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for the clarity of your word to shine light into our lives. God, would you give the people in our room the courage to act on what they've heard, to go out of here and press into the Jesus way, to press into your way, no matter how difficult it feels, no matter how intense the temptations or the trials are, that they would continue to choose your way, to give more, to love more, to offer more of themselves to you, to just keep following you one choice after another, one opportunity for growth and joy and maturity after another. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Wow, we hope that encouraged you and will push you to know Jesus better. There's no better life than the life that is completely dependent on God. Be sure to check back each week for new podcasts from 3SC.